Intense attacks from Russia three nights in a row. The lead starts right now. Massive explosions lighting up the night sky in Ukraine's port city of Odessa. Why does Russia keep targeting that spot? CNN's Alex Marquardt's on the ground for us and also getting an exclusive look at the American armor protecting Ukrainian fighters. Plus, a special and rather odd GOP invitation for Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the 2024 Democratic presidential candidate. How RFK Jr. today attempted to defend his years of lies and conspiracy theories. But first, the meeting right now behind closed doors, the room where it happens, the federal grand jury that could decide whether Donald Trump will be indicted for his role in the January 6th insurrection. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with our law and justice lead, Donald Trump, waiting to hear if prosecutors are going to try to hold him accountable for attempting to overturn the 2020 election, something Mr. Trump could learn at really any given moment now. Right now, the grand jury investigating those efforts is meeting at the federal courthouse here in Washington, D.C. The grand jury is expected to hear from at least two witnesses, after which they could theoretically vote on whether to charge Donald Trump or anyone else in this case. We likely will not find out about potential charges until Trump announces it himself on social media, how he did in the other special counsel investigation about the alleged mishandling of classified documents. Let's get straight to CNN's Evan Pettis. Evan, walk us through what could be happening right now behind closed doors. Do we have any kind of timeline? We don't have a timeline. We know right now that the grand jury is still meeting uh, at the federal courthouse uh, here in Washington. We know that Will Russell, uh, an aide to the former president who has been in before to talk to, uh, to to provide testimony, uh, is there now for the third time. And we know that uh, they're taking that testimony. We, we thought it might be a lot shorter, but it appears it is stretched a lot longer than, than, than initially planned. And so um, typically the grand jury goes home probably in about another 20 minutes or so. Um, and so it is possible that uh, because the Will Russell uh, testimony has gone on for, for however long, longer than it was planned, uh, that we may not get to the big vote that everybody is expecting uh, will happen at some point. Now, prosecutors never said that they would that they would indict him, you know, at a particular time. They or that that he would indict him at all. Right. Exactly. They just warned him right. that he was that that was a possibility in the near future. And so now we wait. So a lot, you know, we all saw this, whatever you want to call it, plan, scheme, conspiracy play right. out in real time involving dozens, hundreds, thousands of people. In plain sight, right? I find it hard to believe that Donald Trump would be the only one that would get a target letter, but we don't know of anyone else that did. We know of no other target letters that have gone uh, to any of the other allies around the former president. But Jake, uh, as you said, you know, a lot of this was in plain sight, and including the fact that we know of, of searches of some of those people who are, were involved, people like Jeffrey Clark, a former Justice Department official who was key to trying to use the Justice Department to support some of these uh, false fraud claims. John Eastman. So those people don't necessarily need to get a, a, a target letter. They already know their targets because the FBI, because the FBI and, and, and the Justice Department already went to them and did searches. So they're on notice that they are, they are potential targets in this investigation. And then obviously the other, the other factor here is that it is possible uh, because we know that prosecutors are still doing investigation. They're still gathering evidence. It is possible that they first tackle the former president uh, in an indictment and then go to the other parts of the conspiracy, the alleged conspiracy, right. uh, later on. But we know, for example, in the Michigan investigation that they arrested and charged 
these fake electors right. just in Michigan. But that's a state investigation, not a federal one. Stick around, Evan, because I want to bring in CNN's Jamie Gangel, uh, as well as former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, I'll start with you. If there are charges, uh, the Justice Department will have to eventually release the indictment. What specifically will we learn from that document uh, should it appear? appear? Well, well, Jake, if there is an indictment, I think it is fair to bet this will be what we call a speaking indictment, meaning it won't just be a dry listing of the charges. It'll read like a narrative. And if we look back at Jack Smith's first indictment, the Mar-a-Lago indictment, I think there's a few things we can look for. First of all, he will give us a much better sense of what his evidence is in the Mar-a-Lago indictment. He cited to specific texts, emails and audio recordings. Second of all, we will get a sense of what who the witnesses are here. For example, if we see a detailed recitation of a one-on-one conversation that we know happened between, hypothetically, Donald Trump and Mike Pence, then I think we can deduce from that that Mike Pence is a witness and somebody who Jack Smith's team is relying on. And finally, of course, we will learn what these specific charges are. That is the most important thing. So, Jamie, one of the questions about this has been, Will there be an effect on the Republican base from all these charges and, frankly, all this evidence against Donald Trump, right? You're laughing already. Well, yeah. there's a lot of evidence. But, but you know, we have seen a rally around the flag impact uh, when it comes to this sort of thing. Donald Trump has a bump in the polls. But yesterday there was a poll released in New Hampshire of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents suggesting that Donald Trump was only supported there by 37 percent. Now, that's still first place, but that's still... A lot of people, that's 63 percent, not supporting Donald Trump. Um, and now maybe I'm just a glass of glasses half full kind of guy as opposed to glasses half empty. But that would seem to suggest a lot of fatigue or at least preference for other people, a majority. So, so let me just suggest that may be New Hampshire, because if you look at national polls. So yesterday there was a Quinnipiac national poll. Trump is 54 percent. Next was DeSantis, 25%, and then Nikki Haley, 4%. So nationally, he's still doing very well. We looked at some fundraising numbers. In early March, uh, Trump was bringing in about $80,000 a day. When that New York indictment came in around those days, $4 million. A day. Not a day, but in the days surrounding it. There was a big bump. Um, and Evan, sources uh, telling CNN the prosecutors are still trying to set up interviews with other witnesses. Um, so could they vote theoretically on charges now and still continue to interview other witnesses, the grand jury? They, they can. Again, if they, especially if they, charge, if they charge Donald Trump only in, in, a, in one indictment and then uh, tackle some of the other parts of the, cons- <clears throat> the, the conspiracy, they can do that at a later time. I mean, it, it, everyone is, is cognizant of the calendar. The Justice right. Department is very much aware, Jake, yeah. of the calendar. We TikTok, know that man. We've got, <laughs> we've got a few weeks before uh, the first debate in the Republican primary. Right. You know, and so everyone is aware of that. And look, I mean, even, you know, I'll say this. In, in, inside the Justice Department, inside the Biden administration, I think there was even, you know, during the time there was a lot of criticism from people like Ellie and others about what's taking so long on this investigation. You know, one of the things I heard back from folks is that, well, you know, it, from a political standpoint, you know, it might only help Trump to prosecute him, right? Maybe it's better to not do this and let the voters decide this in, in 2024. Of course, you know, those are the political people speaking, right? right? The, the law and order people, the people who are running this, this, uh, this investigation don't think that way. They, they have to pursue when they see a crime. So that's one of the things that I think is going on here is that, you know, they are aware of the calendar, and I think, you know, they could 
bring charges against the former president, and then continue to build a case against some of the other characters. Yeah. Ellie, special counsel Jack Smith has already charged Trump in the classified documents case, of course, but the judge in that case has signaled the trial will not start until at least January. Is there any chance this potential case could skip ahead of the classified documents case, this, this January 6th case, and go to trial before January? There is, Jake. So there is no rule saying that the first case indicted also has to be the first case tried. This isn't like the deli counter where you take a ticket and wait your turn. Jack Smith has the ability to prioritize here. He can decide, I'd rather see one of these cases tried first and the other one tried second. Now, it's not solely up to him. Scheduling ultimately is up to the respective judges. And Donald Trump, as the putative defendant here, will certainly have a say. But yes, Jack Smith has the ability to say, this is the one that's more important to me This is the one that I'm going to push to try first. And I think if we look at this realistically, to Evan's point, at best, Jack Smith will have an opportunity to try one of his potentially two cases. He's got to make a real important decision there. And Jamie, we know um, that Vice President Mike Pence testified for more than five hours in this investigation, the January 6th investigation. He has been trying to, to walk a line between separating himself from Trump, but also touting what he sees as his successes as vice president, saying, for example, what Evan just said, like this should be left up to the voters in 2024, not up to the prosecutors. If Trump is indicted, how might that impact Pence's campaign? Uh, It's not clear it's going to make any difference. Look, let's face it. His presidential campaign is not doing very well. He's not raising a lot of money. Thus far, he has not made the debate stage when many of the other candidates, look, he has incredible name recognition in comparison to some of the others. He hasn't made uh, the debate stage. So I don't know that it makes any difference. I just, to go back to, to Evan's point for a second, I was told by very senior former Justice Department officials that this target letter really, it, it's going to happen. There is going to be an indictment of Donald Trump and that they feel they have a very strong case. Otherwise, Merrick Garland would not have signed off on that target letter. All right, Jamie Gangel and everyone else, thanks so much for being here. And the world lead Russia's most destructive strikes yet on Ukraine's port city of Odessa. Why Odessa? Why now? Well, Ukrainians have a theory. And the murder of Tupac Shakur nearly 30 years ago, but there's just been a new police search. We're learning now what what they were looking for. Plus. How come so many lawmakers become filthy rich in office despite their modest congressional salaries? Topping our world lead for the third night in a row, Russian airstrikes bombarded Ukraine's southern port city of Odessa, damaging critical infrastructure and killing at least one person, according to Kyiv. Ukraine's military only was able to shoot down just five of the 19 cruise missiles overnight. Russia claims This onslaught is a retaliatory response to Ukraine's attack on the Crimean bridge earlier this week. CNN's Alex Marquardt reports for us now from Ukraine's front lines in the south, where the counteroffensive is, frankly, struggling to break through Russian forces. In a secret basement bunker, part of Ukraine's 47th Mechanized Brigade is desperately trying to find out how to punch through Russian lines. There are a lot of Russians. There are a lot of Russians. Uh, In here and overall. Uh, They have more guns, uh, they have more shells, uh, and they have more people. 
CNN was given an exclusive look at this battalion command post at the very front of Ukraine's counteroffensive in the south, filled with maps and feeds from drones. Stanislav closely watches dozens of drone feeds, helping artillery teams try to take out Russian positions. And you can see that from here. You can see how close they are, and you yep. can tell them and we And we guide them. You can redirect them yes. farther, yes. closer, left, right. Yes. How do you think the fight is going in your section? It's tough. It's tough. The no-man's land between the two sides is heavily pockmarked with craters from thousands of artillery rounds. But it's these little white dots, some of the countless anti-tank and anti-personnel mines that the Russians have laid, that are part of what is making Ukraine's advance so limited. Demining teams, called sappers, bravely cross the densely mined battlefield, often under fire, to defuse or detonate the Russian mines. Kral is a sapper who just got back from a mission. We need to break through the mine barriers, he says, so that equipment and infantry can pass. The enemy uses constant artillery and mortar fire. It's hard, he says, very hard. Everyone here, soldiers and generals alike, admit that over a month into Ukraine's counteroffensive, progress is slower than they would like. They argue that the Russians had months to dig in and prepare. But Ukraine was preparing as well. Soldiers like this team getting weeks of Western training and all kinds of new equipment. Like this American armored Bradley fighting vehicle, rarely shown to the press. The Bradley team leader named Koch is just 19. He shows us inside, which is also used to carry troops across the battlefield. I feel very protected, he says. We know we're safe because it can withstand a lot. It has a very thick layer of armor, and it has been tested in battles. Why do you wear the American flag? Koch is just four months out from American training in Germany. His U.S. flag patch, a parting gift for good luck from his U.S. trainer. The first day of fighting was the most difficult, he tells us. We didn't know what to expect, what could happen, how events would unfold. Early setbacks on this front have meant that Ukraine has had to change tactics, moving more on foot after many of the newly acquired vehicles were damaged or destroyed. The team camps out in a narrow tree line, trying to hide from Russian drones. When their next order to assault will come, they don't know, but soon they will be back in the fight. This is the life here, the team's gunner says. You live by the fact that you're preparing for the next mission. And Jake, in just the past few minutes, we have heard the air raid sirens go off here in the city of Odessa. This is, of course, a city very much on edge, bracing for what could be potentially yet another night of intense Russian strikes. Uh, as for that counteroffensive, we do continue to see these huge, huge military aid packages from Ukrainian allies pour into Ukraine. Uh, the Biden administration announcing just yesterday $1.3 billion in new aid, not just uh, offensive weapons for that counteroffensive, but defensive weapons as well. In this huge package, uh, there are some, there are four uh, air defense systems called NASAMs. Those are the kind of air defense systems that protect Washington, D.C. Uh, here in Ukraine, they could bat uh, Russian drones and missiles out of the sky. That, of course, very much top of mind all across the country, particularly here in Odessa, uh, as we face a potential fourth night 
of Russian attacks. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe. Let's look at Russia's possible strategy in Odessa with retired U.S. Brigadier General Steve Anderson. Uh, General Anderson, so Russia claims that these uh, consecutive strikes in Odessa are in retaliation for Ukraine attacking the bridge um, linking annexed Crimea to Russia that we discussed I don't even know when that was. Earlier this week, I suppose. What's, what is your assessment? My assessment is that attacking the port of Odessa because that is the major shipping uh, infrastructure that supports the Black Sea Grain Initiative. And, of course, Russia is not signing or not extending the initiative. I think that they're simply trying to bring hurt to the Ukrainian people and negate their ability to ship grain out of this very key port of Odessa that heretofore has been going all the way down to Istanbul and getting out to feed the Eastern Hemisphere. It's so critical that we get that food out. Do you buy that it's a retaliation or does it matter even? It doesn't really matter that at this point, it probably, you know, you can make an argument on either side, but it doesn't matter. The the fact of the matter is, though, we need more air defense artillery systems in this in in Odessa. So Ukraine was only able to shoot down just five out of these 19 Russian cruise missiles overnight. What type of air defense systems should the U.S. be providing the Ukrainians? And why is that equipment uh, that they already sent the U.S. Why has it not been enough? Well, thank you, Jake. Uh, I, before we get to that, I, I want to just put this into perspective here. $40 billion is what we've spent thus far, the United States, on supporting the war in Ukraine. That is equivalent to three and a half months of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Remember, 15 years ago, we were spending $300 million a day on that war. So I submit to you, this is a far more important fight. This is, a, this is the most important geopolitical event of our lifetime, Jake. And so we've got to do more. So what do we mean by that? Well, we need to get the NASAMs there. Now, Alex just reported on this. They, they just approved sending four of these systems in there. But it's going to take probably six to nine months to have any impact. What I'm saying is we need more air defense, and we need to get systems like Patriot. Now, we got 15 battalions in the United States Army of Patriot missiles. These are incredibly effective missiles, but they're not really good at shooting down the drones. And so, so that we need to use this system, the C-RAM. I personally was uh, deployed to Afghanistan in 2016 to 2018. I've seen these things in action. They are absolutely amazing. They're built on the Navy phalanx system. They're incredible. They'll shoot down anything bigger than a soccer ball that comes across, the, that tries to penetrate the perimeter. We need to get these C-RAMs. There are 53 systems in the Army right now. I say we need to get 10 of them over to Odessa right away. And lastly, um, Russia and Ukraine have been exchanging fighting words over the Black Sea, uh, which you talked about, that grain export deal thrown out the window. Russia is threatening to take out any ships going to uh, any Ukrainian port. Uh, Ukraine now says that they'll do the same when it comes to Russia's ships. Well, we've seen the Ukrainians' ability to hit pinpoint targets like they hit the Kerch Bridge back here the other day. They used sea surface drones to do that. And I submit to you, Drake, that all the, the Russian Navy is at risk now. However, you know, the reality is that no insurer is going to support any kind of shipment now out of Odessa down to Istanbul. Anybody that owns a ship isn't going to want to put it in the middle of a war zone. So we, the United States and NATO, need to step up our transportation capability and help the Ukrainians get all this grain out of the Ukraine. They need to do it overland through rail. They have the ninth greatest uh, rail system in the world. There's no reason why we can't leverage that. I, I would like to submit a couple of historic examples. Remember the Berlin Airlift back in 1948? We we're landing a plane every 10 minutes to support the people in Berlin. We can do the same kind of thing here. We can support the Ukrainians, help them get the grain out of Ukraine overland over truck and rail lines and feed the world because otherwise tens of millions 
of people in the world, particularly in the Eastern Hemisphere, are going to be starving. All right, General Anderson, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Just in, Chinese hackers strike again, this time targeting the top U.S. official in China. Plus, open mic, the platform Republicans today gave to a man who has spewed anti-Semitic conspiracy theories as well as baseless other conspiracy theories. And did I mention he happens to be a member of the Kennedy dynasty running for president? Just into CNN, hackers linked with linked to China breached the email of the U.S. ambassador to China. Let's get straight to CNN's Kylie Atwood, who's at the U.S. State Department for us. Kylie, what do we know about this hack? Well, listen, what we're learning now is that there are two top State Department officials whose email accounts were accessed as part of this hack that was related to hackers based in China. And this The key thing here is the timing, Jake, because according to Microsoft, this was a hack into U.S. government systems on the unclassified side, we should note, that occurred sometime in mid-May. And it was on June 16th that there was actually, you know, customers who came to Microsoft and said that there were these anomalies. They began investigating it. June 16th is also the date that the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, was traveling to China. And we reported last week that U.S. officials believed that because of this hack, China, China was able to gain insights into the planning for that trip. Now, of course, the fact that these two top State Department officials were targeted as part of this hack is obviously telling us why they felt that that was the case. Jake. All right, Kylie Atwood, thanks so much. Uh, Turning to our politics lead now and an exercise in alternate reality on Capitol Hill, the House subcommittee investigating the claims Republicans make that the Biden administration has weaponized the federal government against conservatives. Heard from Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. earlier today. Kennedy, who regularly embarrasses his own party and his famous family by spouting misinformation and conspiracy theories. CNN's Eva McKen showed us, shows us to now what happened on the Hill. Democratic presidential candidate and spreader of vaccine misinformation, Robert Kennedy Jr., invited to testify on Capitol Hill. It's the witness's time. Do not censor the witness. I'm not censoring the witness. I'm not censoring the witness. He's still talking. In a testy hearing on censorship, with Kennedy telling the committee his views are protected speech. The First Amendment was not written for easy speech. It was written for the speech that nobody likes you for. Democrats accused Republican leadership of giving Kennedy's dangerous rhetoric a platform in Congress. That's not just supporting free speech. They have co-signed on idiotic, bigoted messaging. It's a conscious choice. Regarding Kennedy's blatant lies, where he said COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese. Today, Kennedy brazenly claimed, I'm under oath in my entire life. I have never uttered a phrase that was either racist or anti-Semitic. I have spent my life fighting my professional career, fighting for Israel. But the CEO of the American Jewish Committee called his prior remarks deeply offensive and incredibly dangerous. Kennedy repeatedly claimed he didn't say things that are in fact on camera. I've never been any vaccine. Everybody in this room probably believes that I have been, because that's the prevailing narrative. I have never told the public, avoid vaccination. 
But Kennedy has attacked safe vaccines, including the COVID-19 vaccine, and promoted false claims like childhood vaccines can lead to autism and that HIV was caused by vaccine research, even saying this on a 2021 podcast. I see somebody on a hiking trail with a carrying a little baby, and I say, I'm better not get them vaccinated. Tweet from Mr. Kennedy. Another key driver for the GOP-led hearing is to call out what they deem was social media censorship of a damning Hunter Biden story. This was illegal government censorship to protect and prop up Joe Biden on the eve of the 2020 election. But Democrats argue misinformation is the larger threat. They want to force social media companies to promote conspiracy theories because they think that's the only way their candidate can win the 2024 election. Now, Jake, despite some of these cockamamie claims from Kennedy, he is resonating with some voters. In the latest Quinnipiac poll, he's at 14 percent among likely Democratic voters. Still, his bid for the White House remains a long shot. Eva McCann, thanks so much for that. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the warrant just obtained by CNN tied to the Tupac Shakur murder, revealing what police were looking for in a recent search. This just into CNN, new details about that search warrant executed this week in connection with the 1996 murder of rap star Tupac Shakur. CNN's Chloe Malas is with us now. And Chloe, Las Vegas police searched the ho- a home in Henderson, Nevada this week. Do we know what they were looking for and do we know what they found? We do, we, we do, Jake. So here is what we know. This home belongs to the wife of a man by the name of Dwayne Keith Davis. Dwayne Keith Davis is someone who has for years claimed that he saw uh, the murder of Tupac Shakur in 1996. We know uh, that authorities, when they got into the home that belongs to uh, Dwayne's wife, that they took five computers, they took tablets, an iPhone, USB hard drives, photographs, a magazine, a Vibe magazine cover uh, that had Tupac. Uh, Actually, also Dwayne Keith Davis famously wrote a book about his friendships uh, with Eazy-E and Diddy and his time running in those circles in Compton, and they confiscated that book as well. Uh, But Jake, Dwayne is someone who has talked in interviews. He has spoken very openly about the fact that he claims that he was driving in the front passenger seat of the Cadillac that pulled up uh, infamously in front of Tupac Shakur's car uh, the night of the shooting and that he knew who fired the weapon, but that he was never going to reveal the identity of that. Now, we, of that person, now we do not know what is on the computers, the tablets, the iPhone. Also, why it took so many years for a warrant like this to be executed when Dwayne Keith Davis has been very open about these allegations and what he has claimed to know for over two decades. All right. Interesting. Chloe Malas, thanks so much. And if you're interested in this story, we're going to be talking in the next hour uh, with podcaster extraordinaire Joel Anderson from Slate, who did a whole season on Biggie and Tupac. In our national lead, crime in America is sure to be a hot button issue in the 2024 race, as it was in the midterms. But Nuances in crime data released today shows that the narrative on crime could potentially be used by either political party. The good news, the number of homicides in 30 U.S. cities dropped by about 9.4 percent in the first half of this year compared to the first half of 2022. The bad news, the homicide rate up 
homicide rate went up in 10 cities. And this year's homicides are still 24% above pre-pandemic 2019 levels. This report from the Council on Criminal Justice suggests this applies across the board to nearly all offenses, better than last year, but still worse than before the pandemic. With us now to discuss, retired Los Angeles Police Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey. Uh, Sergeant Dorsey, always good to see you. What stands out to you most in this new data? Well, the fact that they're saying, um, you know, homicides are, you know, up in one place, down in another, I guess it depends on who you listen to. And we we know that there are only 30 cities that actually submit that kind of information. So uh, what cities are those? And are, are there cities where you know, homicides are naturally down? We know that mass shootings are up. We know that mass murders occurring in those shootings are up. And so I don't think anybody should be lulled into a false sense of security based on numbers that are being uh bantered about. I think the best way to know what's going on is to talk to people in those actual cities. What is their quality of life like? Why haven't we seen, do you think, a return to the crime levels before the pandemic? You know, it could be a variety of things. It could be, you know, uh, folks are concentrating on things that that keep them uh, covered at night, shelter, jobs, uh, those kinds of things. And so uh, maybe, you know, people are in a better place now and, and don't feel the need to victimize others. And so it's difficult to say that there's one thing in particular that would speak to that. Statistics and politics aside, there is this widely held perception in the country that cities are not safe. Uh, we see headline after headline. Uh, maybe people even know uh, individuals who have been affected. Maybe people watching right now have been affected What is your message to the average citizen out there who is concerned about how safe cities are? Well, I would say, you know, be be your own best uh, eyewitness, be your own best advocate. And as I say, don't be lulled into a false sense of security. We get accustomed to doing the same things the same way every day. And complacency will certainly get you hurt and in some instances get you killed. There is one major exception um, to crime declining from the first half of this year compared to the first half of last year. Uh, Motor vehicle theft, uh, which is up significantly, increased by 33.5% in one year. Uh, A viral TikTok trend, um, some people think, has something to do with it. Certain Hyundai and Kia models uh, are being easily stolen. Is is this an example of how crime can in some ways evolve? Um, And how does law enforcement stay ahead of it? I think by being mindful of the trends that are going on in your particular area, there's always on any given um, you know, year a particular vehicle that uh, burglars, car thieves like to target. And so, you know, much like supply and demand, if you have chop shops and others who are looking for particular things, uh, airbags are a big deal. Catalytic converters were at one time a thing that uh, sent people to stealing cars. And so you just need to be mindful of the trend. Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, always good to see you. Thank you so much. Coming up next, how so many lawmakers get rich while serving in the government. Stay with us. In our money lead, members of Congress could soon get their first pay increase in nearly 15 years under a new spending deal approved by the House Appropriations Committee last month. Members would receive an $8,000 bump, upping their salaries from the current $174,000 a year. But for many lawmakers... That congressional salary is just a small part of their yearly income. 
I'm going to let Matt Lewis explain. He's a senior columnist for the Daily Beast, and he's the author of the brand new book out this week, Filthy Rich Politicians, The Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals, and Ruling Class Elites Cashing in on America. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for being here. So so lay it out for us. You're, you're, yeah. This is not, just to be clear, though, uh, it's not just liberals that you're going at. This is about members of Congress and politicians in general. How, how are they getting wealthy? Well, look, so the book's about how the rich get elected and the elected get rich. And the first part of this is the fact that rich people tend to be more likely to run and to get elected. In fact, the average member of Congress is about 12 times richer than the average American household. That alone, I think, is noteworthy and worth debate. Uh, but the more concerning topic is the fact that once people get elected, they tend to get richer. There's a lot of ways they do it, but trust me, it's not their $174,000 a year salary that most of them uh, really rely on. And, and stocks? Stocks. Uh, stock with, with insider knowledge? I mean, Well, is that's, it- that's the, uh, the worst aspect of it. And look, I think this matters a lot because it contributes to eroding trust in elected officials and in the whole in- institution of, of, of politics. Uh, but there are certainly allegations of insider trading. I can give you examples of where it looks like it. It's hard to prove, uh, but it certainly smells swampy. Yeah. Um, you also explore how being related to a politician can be a path to becoming uh, more wealthy. Uh, from your book, uh, quote, uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been criticized because a PAC she was aligned with paid her live-in boyfriend $6,000 for marketing services, but that's nothing compared with Ilhan Omar, another congresswoman, this one, uh, she's from Minnesota, who has already directed millions of campaign dollars to her husband's consulting firm. Uh, we should note, none of that's illegal. Right. Um, and they're far from the only politicians doing this. A lot of members of Congress have, have family members yeah. on payroll for their PAC. Absolutely. And again, this is bipartisan. Ron Paul in 2012, when he was running for president, employed six members of his family and paid them a grand total of something like $300,000 just for that one campaign cycle. So this is something that is uh, very prevalent in politics. And again, I think it erodes trust. There's a sense that the game is rigged and that politicians aren't just feathering their own nests, but they're spreading the money around to friends and family. Um, another example you said in your book is um, former Republican Senator Roy Blunt, whose net worth increased millions of dollars during his time in office. His term ended earlier this year, after which he joined a lobbying firm. Blunt is also married to a lobbyist, and his three kids are lobbyists. So you write, quote, this looks at best nepotistic and swampy and at worst corrupt. Blunt survived politically, but our institutions may have been weakened in the process. And this is also very common. People serving in the House and the Senate, Democrats or Republicans, yeah. and then cashing in by being, becoming lobbyists. I think there's like a, what is it, a two-year wait or something? Yeah, I think in the Senate it's two years, in the House it's one. In my book, Filthy Rich Politicians, I'm calling for a 10-year moratorium on lobbying. So some people want a lifetime ban. I'm not sure that would be constitutional or hold up. But I think a 10-year moratorium would be appropriate so that people can't basically cash in as politicians and then take the revolving door to K Street and keep cashing in on their connections and their friends. One of the ways we've seen politicians become wealthy uh, is uh, often they rise to prominence and then they write books. Uh, We saw that happen with uh, former President Obama. Uh, We saw that recently happen with uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. His net worth skyrocketed uh, thanks to his best-selling memoir. He's now a millionaire. He wasn't before. 
Um, and you, you think there are some real issues with that as well. Yeah, I think politicians should obviously be allowed to write books. But if you're a member of Congress, you shouldn't be allowed to make millions writing books. And, you know, right now they can't get paid to give speeches. I would say the same thing with writing books. But they have really cashed in. You know, Ron DeSantis had a net worth of about $300,000 three weeks ago. Today he's a millionaire because of a book deal. Bernie Sanders, you know, who's a socialist, said, you too could be a millionaire if you write a best-selling book. Oh, and one of the other things that happens, and I'm not alleging this about anybody we've just mentioned, is sometimes people trying to get in with those politicians by hundreds, if not thousands, of copies of that person's book. That is really, it, it's, it's, that's why speeches have, were outlawed by, you know, by the FEC, uh, by the FCC. And, and I think the same thing should happen with books, because you could funnel or launder money to a politician by buying, bulk buying books. All right. The book is out right now. It just came out Tuesday. Filthy Rich Politicians, the Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals and Ruling Class Elites Cashing In on America. Uh, something for everybody to hate. Uh, Matt Lewis, congratulations. Thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. The IRS agent known once as Whistleblower X, now we know his name, raising alarms about the investigation into Hunter Biden, revealing his identity just yesterday on Capitol. He's going to join me here next live, his first post-hearing interview on The Lead. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a big weekend at the box office as Barbie and Oppenheimer are opening in theaters. But sleeper hit Sound of Freedom has made close to $100 million. What's behind the success of that film? Plus, what if anything actually happened on the side of the road in Alabama? A young woman told police... She was kidnapped after trying to save a toddler who was walking alone, but her Google searches before she disappeared are raising some serious questions. And leading this hour, the very first television interview with one of the IRS whistleblowers alleging malfeasance and slow walking in the Hunter Biden investigation. Joseph Ziegler, a self-described Democrat, appeared before the Republican-led House Oversight Committee yesterday, and he'll join me in a moment to discuss his testimony. Ziegler and fellow IRS agent Gary Shapley both allege that the Justice Department did not follow normal procedures during its criminal investigation into Joe Biden's son, Hunter. It appeared to me, based on what I experienced, that the U.S. attorney in Delaware in our investigation was constantly hamstrung, limited, and marginalized by DOJ officials as well as other U.S. attorneys. I still think that a special counsel is necessary for this investigation. Ziegler and Shapley also claim Justice Department officials stopped them from examining the finances of President Joe Biden, where they wanted to look for a possible connection to Hunter's troubled finances, allegations the Justice Department has repeatedly denied, and Democrats on the committee questioned. One thing you will not hear today is any evidence of wrongdoing by President Joe Biden or his administration. Like every other try by our colleagues to concoct a scandal about President Biden, this one is a complete and total bust. The Trump-appointed U.S. Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, who is leading the investigation into Hunter Biden, has sent several letters to Congress responding to Republican questions about the authority he was granted and refuting the notion that he was in any way hamstrung or reined in by the Justice Department. Weiss writing, quote, I want to make clear that as the attorney general has stated, I have been granted ultimate authority over this matter, including responsibility for deciding where, when and whether to file charges. I have not requested special counsel designation. And once again, he asserted that his authority 
was uh, paramount and said he had never, quote, been denied the authority to bring charges in any jurisdiction. So with that said, IRS Special Agent Joseph Ziegler joins us now. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. Um, Let me start with just the big picture here. What is your main allegation you're making about this investigation into Hunter Biden? Well, I wanted to thank you so much for having me on your show. I think it's important that your audience hears essentially what I presented facts yesterday in my testimony. So my main allegation is the equitable treatment of taxpayers. We have to treat every taxpayer the same in investigating our, our, our cases with Department of Justice. And I think that's important that everyone understands that, that, that to have a fair justice system, we need to treat people the same. It doesn't matter what your political beliefs are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Everyone should be treated the same. Right. And the suggestion is that Hunter Biden was given special treatment and the uh, U.S. attorney did not um, go proceed as aggressively as he would have had Hunter Biden been someone else. Um, so David Weiss, as you know, the U.S. attorney said in a letter to Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, quote, I have been granted ultimate authority over this matter, including responsibility for deciding where, when and whether to file charges. Uh, I read that earlier. It wasn't just in this letter. He said it in multiple letters. Do you think he's not telling the truth? So it's not, I don't know his intentions with what he stated there, but what I can tell you is the facts. I know, based on conversations I had with assigned prosecutors, that he went to the, the Washington, D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office bringing the case there. They told him no. He had to He wanted, bring, to, he wanted to charge Hunter Biden here in D.C., you mean? So he wanted to bring the case there in D.C. to charge for the 2014 and 2015 tax years. They told him no. And I think it's important that in his letter he said that his authority is geographically restricted to the District of Delaware. And if he needs to go outside of that, he needs to ask to partner with these other U.S. attorney's offices. And if they say no, then he needs to ask for that special attorney authority. And he was assured that. His not counsel authority. No, he says special, special attorney, attorney authority. Okay. And I think it's important that you understand that they haven't turned over a document that says, here's the letter where we gave him the special attorney authority. And... All we're trying to do is say that if, if, if this were anyone else, if this were uh, Joe, Joe taxpayer, he would be getting a much different treatment than what was at place here. Well, you're saying that there would be other charges in other jurisdictions. Is that, is that, what, I'm, is that what I'm taking from this? So the, the prosecutors assigned to this case. Because he was charged. I mean, he did have a plea agreement. and there, I mean, there, he is going to go before a judge. I mean, it's not like he's not facing anything. I, I, I'm not excusing it, but I'm just saying there are these allegations and he is going to face a, a, a courtroom proceeding, etc. So the four assigned prosecutors of the case agreed with recommending felony and misdemeanor tax charges for Hunter Biden. Mm-hmm. David Weiss also agreed with that. And I know that from a meeting that I had with him in late August, early September. And on top of that, you have... Um, David Weiss, essentially, so they all agreed to charging this, the felony and misdemeanor. So DOJ, DOJ policy on this mm-hmm. is that their tax policy is that if you have a felony with a misdemeanor, you have to charge the felony. And that's to prevent an equitable treatment of taxpayers. And they didn't do that, is what you're saying. And according to the charging document, they only charged two misdemeanors, and one of those tax years related to 2018. So let me just uh, give you an opportunity to respond to some of the things that Democrats uh, on Capitol Hill are saying. First of all, they're saying, why would a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, David Weiss, lie? 
So I have no idea what his, what his motives or what his beliefs are. All I can do is present the facts to Congress. Mm-hmm. And it's for them to determine and the American people and the administration to make the proper decision on how to move forward. So let me ask you another question. So you're a 13-year veteran of the IRS. Is that correct? I am. Okay. Is this the most high-profile, most potentially politically sensitive case you've ever, you've ever worked on? Yeah, I would say so. And, and uh, when you say that you saw abnormalities in this case, um, like what other cases are you comparing it to? Just the, the normal Joe Taxpayer case. So I'm actually working an even bigger case than this. Not as sensitive as this, but an even bigger case than this. And I can tell you the assigned prosecutors in that case have not acted anywhere near what we were going through, being constantly hamstrung, not following normal process. The, the storage unit location that we wanted to do the search warrant on. Mm-hmm. I think that it's important for people to understand that we had a plan to move forward. Even David Weiss agreed with that plan. But then they were at the same time telling defense counsel that we know about this storage unit and that you need to turn over the records. So we were relying on him and his counsel to turn over those records to the government versus us going and getting those records. So another, you testified yesterday you wanted to interview President Biden's uh, grandchildren, uh, Hunter's grown, grown children, right? Mm-hmm. They're adults. Um, but you were told, no, you couldn't. Um, even without those interviews, you still had enough evidence in your view uh, to recommend charges because he was deducting things related to them that he, what, he wouldn't be allowed to, to deduct in his taxes, right? I mean, so you already knew the crime had happened, you didn't, the argument would be, you don't need to talk to his hunt, to Hunter's adult children. You already have the evidence that what he did was wrong. Um, so tell me why, why that's not a satisfactory answer. So when we work our tax cases, and it's an expense that is deducted for, as a business expense on someone's tax return, you have to, essentially, they're presumed that that's a business expense until you prove that it's not. So part of it is going to the third party to get those records. That's one step. And then interviewing that person to determine why was that, why was that expense made. And then a lot of times those witnesses could lead you to other things. They could lead you to other evidence, expenditures that might have been re- made related to them. So obviously it's a politically sensitive case. And I don't disagree with you that theoretically everybody should be treated equally before the law and in investigations like this. Um, one question I have is, because we hear Democrats saying this, that you and Shapley have not pr- pr- produced any evidence of criminality by President Biden. Is that, when they say that, is that correct? So what I can tell you and what we stated yesterday, we are working with the House Ways and Means. We are... To get President Biden's taxes? No, it's we are working with the House Ways and Means to... Any records that Congress has asked for related to this investigation, we are working through the process. They can vote on whether or not to release those to the full Congress. And that's the process that is a part of being a whistleblower. So this was cited uh, and you were called before the committee um, because uh, they're talking about the House Republicans are saying that the federal government has been weaponized against conservatives and Republicans. Uh, They give any number of examples of there being very aggressive treatment of Republicans uh, and, in their view, in their characterization, uh, kid glove treatment for Democrats. Um, you are a self-described Democrat. You worked at the IRS for 13 years. Is that an accurate description based on what you've witnessed in those 13 years? 
So I'm not going to speak to the, the weaponization of, of the government because I don't think that's appropriate for me. I'm just going to present the facts as I know them. I think one of the big things that I mentioned yesterday was we need to have an independent author- attorney with authority to come in here and see and make sure that things were done correctly to the law. And I think it's important that there, there may be ancillary offshoot cases from this that are sensitive that need to be investigated appropriately that may not have venue in Delaware so we don't run into that same exact problem. And that's all, all I'm trying to say is that we need to have someone in there to look at that. Do you know of criminal charges against Hunter Biden that were not filed that definitively there is evidence, proof that they should be filed, that he should be facing justice for? So again, meeting with the attorney, assigned attorneys, we all, and that included Department of Justice tax attorneys, all agreed for felony and misdemeanor tax charges related to 2017, 2018, and 2019. I didn't see that in the charging document that was filed in Delaware. And, so, and those charges would have been for what? Undeclared income? So it would have been a false return cha- tax charge. So it's 72061 and a false, or uh, I'm sorry, tax evasion. So 7201. So it, evading your income taxes. So you tell me, because you're the expert, not me, is it not possible that in the dealings with the Hunter Biden attorneys, they just agreed, okay, we'll drop this in exchange for a plea of guilty? Because that does happen. So I can tell you there's a lot of cases around the U.S. right now where people are being charged with both the felony and misdemeanor and not having the felony dropped off. So I think it's important that it's in the, it's in the, it's in the tax manual, their policy that states that if you have the felony and you have the evidence there and there is also a misdemeanor, you have to charge the felony in order to not have an equitable treatment of taxpayers. And so in your mind, should Hunter Biden be... Sentenced to jail, sentenced to prison. Is that what you think justice would look like based on the crimes committed? So again, I'm not here about about Hunter Biden. I'm here about the bigger, bigger picture of all of this. I blew the whistle because I saw inappropriate things being done throughout this investigation. I brought facts. I brought things that had happened as I recalled them to Congress. My supervisor, Gary Shapley, did the same thing. And I think it's important for the American people don't read our transcripts. Yeah. Read the transcripts because we did that under oath. We can be, if we said something, if we lied, willfully lied in that, 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 that's so important that read what we said and you can determine for yourselves one way or the other. Do you think that it's possible that because this was the president's son, there were extra sensitivities and extra protocols because of that that would have been extended to an investigation of a Republican president's son or daughter as well. But, but, and since this is the highest profile, biggest, most sensitive uh, investigation you ever were part of, you weren't used to that, but that really is just generally what happens when it has to do with any powerful family, any powerful, and again, I'm, I'm not excusing it, yeah. but I'm just saying, like, I'm wondering if this is just how, like, the DuPonts would be treated or, you know, because you're from Delaware. Uh, you <laughs> no, know, I'm from Georgia. Oh, OK. But you're working in Delaware. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like that any powerful family might be treated with kid gloves like this. Again, I'm not saying that's right, but that maybe that's what happened. Yeah. And, and to that point, I mean, I think it's important that I understood that it was a politically sensitive case. I'm completely aware it, he was an attorney. 
Records had to go through a filter review. So I'm completely aware of all those problems. And that's why I think it's important that we have an independent attorney who has authority, so a special counsel, independent attorney, that can get in there and, and make sure that things are done correctly and that the, that the proper charges are brought, that would restore faith in our justice system. Well, I know it's not an easy thing to be a whistleblower. I know it's not an easy thing to walk into the public and say things like this, and you're going to be attacked. You were attacked before by Trump people who thought that you were, you were part of a conspiracy, and likely you're going to be attacked by the other side now. Uh, Joseph Ziegler, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Coming up next, a Democratic member of the House Oversight Committee who questioned Ziegler today will respond, or questioned Ziegler yesterday, sorry, responds to Ziegler's comments just now. Then, what was taken from a Nevada house that was just searched in connection with Tupac Shakur's murder? We're going to talk to the host of the podcast, Slow Burn, who did an entire season on the Tupac and Biggie murders. Stay with us. We're back and sticking with our politics lead moments ago, I spoke with IRS whistleblower Joseph Ziegler, who alleges that the Justice Department did not follow normal procedures during its criminal investigation into Joe Biden's son, Hunter. Uh, Here to respond is Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman from New York, who's a member of the House Oversight Committee, was part of the hearing yesterday where Mr. Ziegler testified. Uh, Congressman, good to see you. I want to get your reaction uh, to what we just heard from Mr. Ziegler. Well, first, I want to say about both of them, uh, there is no question that they are diligent, hardworking agents. And as I have encountered as a former federal prosecutor many times, agents are often disappointed after they put in tons of man hours. This was a five-year investigation. He testified of doing over 60 interviews, hundreds of thousands of documents, that they may be frustrated that their ultimate recommendation was not granted. But what's important is to understand the system here and how this works. When they made that recommendation to the Department of Justice Tax Division, their role is effectively over. The DOJ Tax Division then does an evaluation of the charges. The prosecutors there do. They wrote, in this case, a 100-page memo that had tons of reservations and concerns about the case, which we know because they did not give a blanket approval for the charges. They instead assessed it with discretion, which means that it goes back to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the U.S. Attorney's Office discretionary decision whether or not to charge because there are reservations. Then the U.S. Attorney's Office gets uh, that information and they meet with defense lawyers and defense lawyers make their presentation of their defenses and why the government is wrong in this case. Mm -hmm. The agents in this case did not see that 100 page memo. They were not privy to the presentations by the defense attorneys and they don't have to prove the case at trial. The prosecutors do. And that's why these very difficult charging decisions are made by prosecutors and not these agents. Right. And so that's the disconnect that we have here. Well, that might be a disconnect, but one of the things Ziegler was saying was not just that his recommendations weren't heard. He was saying that he, he was hampered in his, in his investigation. For instance, uh, Hunter Biden uh, deducted on his taxes his kids' college tuition. And that's not a legitimate deduction. And so instead of just taking that uh, paper evidence as sufficient, he wanted to go talk to, to the adult children of Hunter Biden. And he said that that's just how normally an investigation would happen. 
Um, I, but I he disagree was, with that. No, I you, disagree with that. Why? It, because you you are you very rarely go interview the children of a subject of an investigation if they were not in any way indicated to be involved in this. And you especially don't when it is a sensitive investigation like this. That is a hyper over-aggressive step that is unnecessary to prove that element of the case. And I think that's part of the problem here is that many of what their suggestions were are very over-aggressive and did not take into consideration the fact that Much of the conduct they were talking about was an election year where the subject's father was on the ballot. So the, quote, slow walking that they talk about was actually done by Bill Barr's Justice Department because of election year sensitivities. Mm -hmm. And and so if to the extent it was slow walked or he has issues with the search warrant, you know, that was the, the Bill Barr Justice Department. And we know Bill Barr was not afraid of abusing his power for the benefit of Donald Trump, as he did with Michael Flynn and Roger Stone. And he mentioned one other thing, Jake, the equitable treatment of taxpayers. Let's talk about Roger Stone. Roger Stone settled with the Department of Justice in a case that was about the same amount of money as this case, according to the agents. And he settled civilly, even though the allegations were that he essentially hid money in shell companies in order to evade paying those taxes. Right. And the vast majority of cases like Hunter Biden's, like Roger Stone's, are settled civilly. So the fact that Hunter Biden is actually pleading guilty to a, any sort of criminal charge in a case like right. this, where it would be really difficult to prove knowing intentional inv- evasion, which is a very high standard, is, uh, is quite remarkable in and of itself. What about uh, another uh, suggestion Mr. Ziegler made, which is that when U.S. Attorney Weiss wanted to step outside of his jurisdiction, Delaware, Uh, and work with other U.S. attorneys in other jurisdictions, such as Washington, D.C., keeping in mind that Mr. Weiss was appointed by Donald Trump and was kept in that office uh, so as there not to be a conflict of interest with him being replaced by President Biden. But when he wanted to work with a Biden-appointed U.S. attorney, uh, that was constantly rejected, and he wasn't able to do that. What about that suggestion? Uh, It's belied and undermined completely by Mr. Weiss's letter. And this is another thing where they clearly did not understand the process, because in their ways and means testimony, they only talked about a special counsel and Weiss saying that he was not going to be either allowed or asked for to become a special counsel, which was a decision that Bill Barr made. But what they didn't understand or talk about is this special attorney under Section 515. And what Mr. Weiss made very clear is he was not going to be a special counsel. It was not necessary. He would either partner with a different venue, a different district, or if not, he had full authority to pursue charges under the special attorney statute. He never got to that point. He never was going to needed to file the charges. And ultimately, Hunter Biden waived venue in order to do this in Delaware. They were in regular communication with the defense attorney. So this is yet another somewhat inflammatory allegation that's just belied by the facts that we're dealing with here. Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Jake. Donald Trump waiting to hear if he's going to be indicted in the 2020 election investigation, a decision he could hear any moment. CNN has some brand new reporting about the special counsel's next step. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, the federal grand jury investigating Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election just wrapped up its work for the day. The grand jury met for more than six hours today. They heard testimony from at least one witness, a former Trump aide, 
The jury also could have voted on whether to indict Donald Trump or anyone else in the case. CNN's Paula Reed joins us live. And Paula, you have some brand new reporting about the special counsel scheduling even more witness interviews in this investigation. That's right, Jake. As the anticipation builds for a likely indictment of former President Trump, we've learned that the special counsel will continue talking to witnesses for at least the next month. And of course, the former president says that he received this target letter over the past weekend. But in the weeks leading up to that, the special counsel had been in touch with many witnesses, but some of them have not yet been scheduled for interviews, and some of them aren't on the calendar until at least mid-August. Now, this does not stop them from indicting former President Trump or anyone else. They could certainly file charges and then keep talking to witnesses. That's what we saw happen in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. They indicted former President Trump and Walt Nada, and then they continued their investigation, even sending out uh, at least one new target letter. So it's clear that even if the former president is indicted over the next several days, the special counsel's work will continue. And Paul, tell us about this unusual moment in court today involving the special counsel. Well, Jake, it was a crazy day in federal court here in Washington. All eyes were on the grand jury, but uh, there was some spillover drama because uh, Will Russell was the witness who was going before the grand jury once again. He's a close Trump aide, been before the special counsel before. He is represented by Stan Woodward, who represents a lot of the witnesses uh, in these investigations and even a defendant, Walt Nada. Well, Woodward was with his client, Will Russell, and the grand jury appearance went late. So he was late for another hearing representing another defendant, and the judge in that case got pretty mad and made him explain why he was late. And Woodward revealed that there had actually been a fight over executive privilege during Will Russell's appearance before the grand jury. Then the judge insisted that one of the special counsel prosecutors come up from the grand jury and talk to him about exactly what happened. Now, some of this, Jake, it's just judges being judges, right? Black robitis, nobody messes with my schedule. But the interesting nugget here is that there was some sort of issue with executive privilege in talking to Will Russell. Not terribly surprising because they've had issues with that in the past. Of course, we expect he'd be asked about the former president. But just another example of how the special counsel's work uh, continues. And it's clearly not done because they're running up against privilege issues. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Uh, Let's discuss all of this. And I have to say, guys... Some breaking news while we were on the air today. Uh, It was sent to me by our good friend Margaret Hoover, who does uh, Firing Line uh, over on PBS. Take a listen uh, to um, independent, uh, well, I think she's a Republican again, Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, talking about uh, West Virginia uh, moderate Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who has been making moves with this group, no labels, suggesting he might run for president as a third-party candidate. Here is Murkowski Uh, asked about this in a way. Take a listen. If it's a matchup between Biden and Trump, I know exactly where I'd go. I would go with, I would go with Joe Manchin. I am one who doesn't like to use my vote for the lesser of evils. I want to be proactive in who I think could do the job. I think Manchin could do the job. But will our system allow for that? That I don't know. Let's go to the person at the table who I think this bothers I know. the most. I know. <laughs> you can't win. Who can't win? Joe Manchin, a third party. No she, doesn't, she doesn't she care. She says, I don't know if he can win. Yeah. So she's throwing away her vote and she's electing Donald Trump. She's an important uh, senator. Uh, I, I like Manchin. I, I like him a lot. He's a good guy. But Ross Perot spent millions and millions and millions of dollars. He got the votes of one out of five Americans and zero electoral votes. Teddy Roosevelt had not only been president, he won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he ran as a third party. 
he lost. All he did was throw the election to the other party. George Wallace party. got electoral votes. He, he got five. It. He got 46. He got five states. Yeah. Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas. What do they have in common? They were looking for a racist regional candidate. Manchin is not that. He's a decent guy and a moderate. And we, the, the problem for the Biden people is Biden won moderates by a margin of 30. 30. So every vote a moderate gets, a Manchin gets, a, a no labels gets, everyone will come right out of Joe Biden. It will elect Donald Trump. It's, it's irrefutable math. What do you think, Ramesh? I think that Manchin might not be able to be president, but he's got a better shot of being president than of getting reelected senator in West Virginia right now with those as Republican as that state has gone. I tell you what, he's not going to get West Virginia's electoral votes if he's the presidential candidate. Um, I think it is, this is one of those things where the early polling will always show a third-party candidate, uh, particularly somebody who's a sitting senator, not some nobody, uh, as having decent chance. But we saw, I think, in 2016 when he had the most unpopular set of presidential candidates we've ever had, that a lot of that melts away in the end. And, uh, uh, and so I agree with Paul. Um, it's not going to be different this time. So this concern, though, not just uh, Murkowski basically saying that she would vote for Manchin, but this concern over the two candidates and being in a position where you have to basically vote for the lesser of two evils. I have to say that is something that is echoed by voters that I've spoken to in, in, in recent months. I mean, this is a concern amongst Democrats, too. And it's a reason why when you have someone like Cornell West entering the race, when you have you know, all this uh, attention increasingly on Manchin as well, him recently going to a no labels as well event. This is a point of concern for those in the White House because, as you just mentioned, independents, moderates, whenever you hear the president go out and say, go to Pennsylvania and make a speech about the economy or talk about yeah. how the jobs he's creating don't need uh, college degrees, it's to go after those independents. This is a point of concern for them. And, and Gloria, just uh, uh, polling indicates 65 percent of the American people do not want Joe Biden to be president. Uh, in, uh, in 2024, 60 percent of the American people feel that way about Donald Trump. I mean, there is an opening, theoretically. And I think that's what this no labels movement, if we could call it that, at this stage is trying to tap into. And I think what Zolan said is exactly what I was thinking about as you were mentioning all of the history. The woman who does my hair and knows that I have this job often says to me, you know, I just don't like either one of them. Mm -hmm. And if either one of them is going to be the nominee, I don't know if I'm going to vote. And this is someone who is not uh, watching TV all day long and following every single political move. So I think they're That's trying to... That's most people. Exactly. <laughs> right, so they're yeah. trying to tap into something yeah. that is real, certainly something that I've heard before speaking to voters. People have this feeling of just being dissatisfied with both candidates. So something else interesting that happened today, um, we know that Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, has been trying to get back into Trump's good graces uh, after his interview uh, a week or so ago in which he, he said that he wasn't sure that Donald Trump was the strongest candidate for 2024. Well, he got a phone call after that. He got back immediately. There was a text message that went out from Kevin McCarthy saying Donald Trump is the strongest one. Now a source tells CNN that McCarthy is backing symbolic resolutions that would expunge Trump's two impeachments, um, including the second impeachment, which had to do with how much Donald Trump should be held responsible for what happened in January 6th at the Capitol. And just to remind people, as Kevin McCarthy is talking about expunging that impeachment, which he voted against, this is what Kevin McCarthy, when the blood was still wet on the floor of the Capitol, had to say about Donald Trump on January 6th. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. 
Uh, yeah, well, I mean, he bore responsibility also for telling the lies that got the mob there right. in the first place. Um, the thing is, even if there's an expungement of this impeachment, the House did, in fact, impeach Donald Trump twice. Uh, and in that second impeachment, uh, more senators of the president's party voted for conviction than had ever happened in American history. Those are just facts of the historical record now, and there's nothing that the House can do now to undo that. What I think is going on here is that McCarthy is using this promise as a way of stalling on his own presidential endorsement. I think it's quite interesting that McCarthy hasn't endorsed Trump for the nomination yet. Uh, and I have to imagine that Trump is, is going to continue to put some serious pressure on him to do this, just that. It, it, McCarthy will never bring this to a vote. Really? Yes, because it's idiotic. Oh, because the moderates. Members. Yes, right. exactly. He's got 18 members. 18. He's got a five-seat margin. 18 of those hold districts that Joe Biden won. Why would he put them through that meat grinder? Why would he? It's, it's, if he does it, Hakeem Jeffries should just send a gift basket, the Democratic leader, over to Kevin. He's, he's never. The first obligation of leadership is to protect your vulnerable members. His majority makers are those moderates who hold Biden seats. And he's going to make them vote to expunge Trump's impeachment? One other uh, issue I want to bring up is the Florida Board of Education has just approved, uh, I think yesterday, new standards for how black history should be taught in the state's public schools. Among the changes, Florida students are now going to learn about some of the supposed positive benefits of slavery. I'm just going to read from the state's new academic standards guide, quote, instruction includes how slaves developed skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, what could you say about it? I mean, we often talk about things like this in terms of politics and whether or not someone's playing to the right of Trump. But I thought that at the meeting in Florida when this passed, the comments from teachers themselves uh, really got to the point. And uh, one teacher in the Tampa Bay Times basically said, if we're only highlighting those who worked to end slavery, but not those who worked to further or enact it, then we're leaving students to fill in the blanks there. And the implication there was that we're not actually doing this in favor of our students and we're actually harming them and harming their education in the process. And I think it's important to remember that. It seems like right now in pursuit of politics, there's an effort almost to comfort those that may feel guilty about this period of American history rather than ensure sort of the accurate portrayal of American history. Well, so much of our history is uncomfortable, right? And that is a key part of the educational process that children must go through and that people must go through in order to understand what happened so that it doesn't happen again. And this suggestion that there might have been some personal benefits to slavery, free labor, stolen labor, is just, I mean, I, I don't know how you put that into a curriculum and try to explain it uh, to, to students that are trying to learn the history of this country. So, um, again, uh, culture wars, DeSantis, part of what he says he wants to bring to the entire country should he be president, um, it's a sign of what he thinks should be done. Thanks to one and all. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the mysterious case of Carly Russell. She's the Alabama woman who disappeared after a 911 call, then reemerged 48, 49 hours later. Why police are having such a hard time verifying what she told detectives? Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, a mysterious case that has left Alabama police with more Questions then answers, shall we say. Last week, Carly Russell called 911 about a toddler 
she said, was walking along alone on the side of a highway. Hi, I am on Interstate 459, and there's a pig just walking by themselves. Then Carly Russell disappeared. She disappeared for 49 hours before suddenly showing up at her family's house. Her mother believes that her daughter was abducted. But since Russell's return, police say they cannot verify most of her story. And internet searches on Russell's phone before her disappearance have only added to the mystery. The searches include, quote, do you have to pay for an Amber Alert? How to take money from a register without being caught? One-way bus tickets? And the movie, Taken. Joining us now to discuss CNN's John Miller, who's been following this case. John, help us understand where the investigation stands now. So police were able to interview her after she said she escaped for her captors for a second time, um, made it home. She was taken to a hospital, examined. She was physically okay. She had a cut and a, a ripped shirt. And um, at the hospital, they found $107 hidden inside her sock. Um, you'll note her purse, phone, and everything was left behind in the car. A lot of problems with this story that are vexing for police. Her claim was that as she was going to watch the baby who was walking along the highway, she got out of the car to check on the baby, and a man and a woman came out of the woods. They grabbed her, dragged her through the woods over a fence. Next thing she knew, she was in the back of an 18-wheeler, Going down the road, she could hear a man's voice, a woman's voice, and a baby crying. She escaped the 18-wheeler and then jumped into a car. I mean, uh, ran away, but they caught her. They brought her to a house. She was uh, uh, disrobed. They blindfolded. She thinks they took pictures of her. Um, then she was back in a car. Then she escaped and found her way home. So the 49 hours is um, kind of a hard-to-graph story of... Um, a very strange abduction. Now, her parents are standing with her. They say they're worried about her emotional well-being and that the abductors are captured. Police obviously have a lot of questions about how this could have happened, how no one else could have seen this baby, how during the 911 call where she said she was watching the baby, her car managed to travel 600 yards or the distance of three full football fields. So they want to talk to her again. If it comes out that this did not happen. And we don't know that that's the case, although that's what people are wondering. Could she potentially face charges? So she could, um, but police have been extraordinarily careful, but also sensitive, Jake, about how they describe this extraordinarily unlikely um, chain of events um, by saying they want to talk to her again, they need to continue their investigation and get more information. So. If it's a false report, she could be charged with making a false report. Um, that could be a uh, thing that they could use to get her help if she needs help, or they could get to a place where they work with her family, um, and if she needs help, they get her help. All right, John Miller, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a look at the sleeper hit of the summer. It's only being beaten at the box office by Tom Cruise's new Mission Impossible movie. And... A new development in the Tupac Shakur murder case. From 1996, details about the items police took when they searched a Nevada home. We're going to talk to the host of Slow Burn, the podcast that did an entire season on the Tupac and Biggie murder. Stay with us. In our pop culture lead. What's that? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you over the Sound of Freedom movie breaking in money at the box office. This indie film is closing in 
on $100 million, and last weekend was second only to Tom Cruise's new Mission Impossible film. Promoted heavily by conservatives and Republican politicians, Donald Trump held a screening in Bedminster last night. Uh, Tom's foreman is now going to explain the phenomena behind the sound of freedom. It is the fastest growing international crime network that the world has ever seen. Sound of Freedom is a flag-waving hit, promoters say, is based on the true story of a U.S. federal agent who quit his job to more aggressively chase child sex traffickers. Why are you doing it? Because God's children are not for sale. But for star Jim Caviezel, it is also a crusade for countless kids who were trafficked. It's disgusting that the media uh, hasn't covered it like they should. The problem? May you join St. Michael and all the angels in defending God and sending Lucifer and his henchmen straight right back to hell where they belong. While the movie is not about conspiracy theories, Caviezel, a devout Christian, has often shared views similar to those of conspiracy theorists, who have argued Hollywood elites, Democrats, and others are running a secret cabal of child traffickers. Such lies led to an armed attack in 2016 on a D.C. pizza place where victims were falsely believed held. Cabezal has talked about a false idea that children are being snatched so a chemical called adrenochrome can be harvested from their bodies. This is 10 times more potent than um, uh, heroin, and um, it has some mystical qualities as far as making you look younger. A scathing review in Rolling Stone notes that while the movie reflects none of those falsehoods directly, it also fails to note how many victims are teenagers trafficked by family members or people they know. There's nothing about harvesting children for organs or drinking their blood, but the implication is still that there is a very powerful pedophile elite that is operating a global ring. Still, at the box office, only the latest Mission Impossible is selling more tickets. The Sound of Freedom closing in on $100 million in revenue. And it's all steadily fueling Caviezel's conviction that this movie can be a movement. Sound of Freedom is one of those films that can legitimately change this world. Homeland Security and the Department of Education say the most common age for kids to be sex trafficked is between 11 and 14. And whether you focus on those children or younger kids who appear in this movie a lot, this is a terribly serious matter. So supporters of this film are outraged that anyone would question its message. But critics are just as concerned that this movie is painting a crusading version of the issue that is misleading that it dances too close to the conspiratorial edge, and in doing so, they fear it may draw attention away from established, less cinematic efforts to help kids in trouble. Jake? All right, Tom Foreman, thank you so much. In our Law and Justice lead, new details about the search executed this week in connection with the 1996 murder of Tupac Shakur, the actor and rapper. CNN obtained the warrant that reveals Las Vegas police searched a home in Henderson, Nevada, which is connected to Dwayne Keith Davis. Davis is a self-proclaimed witness to the shooting and believed to be the uncle of Orlando Anderson, who has long been suspected of being involved in Tupac Shakur's murder. Anderson denied it to CNN before his death in a gang-related shooting in 1998. Police were told took several tablets, an iPhone, five computers, USB hard drives, and even a copy of a magazine about Tupac Shakur. With me now, Joel Anderson, a writer for Slate and host of the Slow Burn podcast uh, for season three. 
which focused on the murders of Tupac and Biggie. His current season uh, is about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. So, Joel, uh, police are making new moves nearly 30 years after Tupac's murder. How significant is this? Well, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, Greg Kading, the LAPD detective who led the last big investigation into these deaths about a decade ago, had predicted that no one will ever get prosecuted or convicted. But I would, that might have been frustration because it certainly seems like they're on the trail here. And Keefe D has been the primary witness for almost 25 years at this point. He was at the scene. He says that he was there with the gunman who was his nephew, uh, Orlando Anderson. And I mean, they've been looking into him for over 25 years so that they're moving on him now certainly seems to indicate that maybe something is afoot. The affidavit uh, requests, um, the, requesting the warrant shows that police were also looking for notes, writings, ledgers, any other handwritten or typed documents concerning television shows, documentaries, YouTube episodes, book manuscripts, and movies concerning the murder of Tupac Shakur, unquote. What does that suggest to you? Well, I mean, the thing about uh, Keith E.D., Keith Davis, he has been talking about uh, these murders for a very long time in YouTube interviews, in his own book, uh, Compton Street Legend, and in other avenues, so in other mediums. So um, it probably is just the fact that he's got all the evidence there, right there at his house. I mean, it's not like he's running from it. He said, hey, guys, I was there at the scene of the shooting, and he's got all this other information. So I think that's probably what what it means to me is that they they're they're not waiting they're not wasting any more time anymore and they're willing to move in on him and you know in the last couple of months TFD has spoken up a little bit more made some other claims that were sort of outlandish about getting paid by a rapper to 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 do this killing so um, it has drawn a lot more attention to him in the last couple of months for sure. What does it mean to you as somebody who did a whole season of a podcast a great a great season by the way season three. Um, of Slow Burn on, on Slate's podcasts. Um, but a whole season on the fact that these crimes, Biggie and Tupac, were never solved. Uh, the fact that here we are, it's 2023, this took place in 1996. There is still police investigation going on. What, what does it mean to you? Well, I mean, I think that it's, it, it certainly captures the, the, the imagination of the public. Uh, these two, you know, insanely talented young black celebrities who are cut down even before the prime of their careers, that there's still some interest and that people feel that there needs to be some justice in their murders. Like, I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but it certainly seems that people are pushing them on all sides to continue to look in this case. And I'll even say four years ago, when we called to look into this case with the uh, Las Vegas police, they said that this was an active and open uh, investigation, active and ongoing investigation. So um, it certainly seems that there are a lot of people that are pushing them to look into this. And that's only a good thing. I think people want to get some closure here to the extent that that's possible. Agreed. Agreed. Joel Anderson, thanks so much. Keep up the great work as always. Thanks, Jacob. Good to have you on. And I have a brand new thriller on bookshelves right now. It's called All the Demons Are Here. It's a wild ride through a bizarre era for our nation. The 1970s features Evil Knievel, Elvis, post-Watergate, mistrust, cults, disco, the summer of Sam, the rise of tabloids, UFOs, cults, more. USA Today called it one of the must-reads of the week. I'd be honored if you would check it out. You can order it now. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky, if you have an invite. TikTok at Jake Tapper. Threads, you can tweet the show at the Lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.